Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, drop, 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 Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast and the first episode of 2023. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm online with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us today, all the way from LA, is the truly legendary Pamela DeBars. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Barney. the sometime miss pamela needs no introduction from me her classic 1987 memoir i'm with the band was a bestseller and she's followed it up with several more books she also has her own delightful podcast pamela de bar's pajama party which happens to be on pantheon the same podcast network as this one pamela we're going to talk to you (laughs) shout out to pantheon pamela we're going to talk in this episode about the all gold gtos and about Lots of other things, Frank Zappa, Lowell George, Alice Cooper, and of course, the whole groupie phenomenon in your native Los Angeles. We'll also hear clips from an audio interview with producer Peter Asher, and we will, of course, pay tribute to the great Jeff Beck. It's actually a little-known fact that Jeff, I think, actually performed on, played on, played some role on 1969's Permanent Damage, the only album the GTO has ever released. So we can get, can we get straight into the story of that remarkable group of women semi-assembled by, by Mr. Zappa? How, how did you, Pamela, intersect with Frank Zappa's sort of Laurel Canyon world in the first place? Laurel Canyon was where everybody wanted to be because all the bands lived there. Love, Buffalo Springfield, The Doors, The Birds, you know, and I knew where every one of them lived. I was very young. You know, I was 16 when I got nuts about all these bands, local bands. I was a Beatle freak, of course, but then all of it, there were local bands. And the way it happened is very strange. A good friend of mine, Victor Hayden, who later became the Mascara Snake in his cousin's band, Captain D. <laughs> Magic Band, yeah. he took, took me to meet his cousin in 1965 when I was still in high school. And so I met Don Van Vliet very early on, which changed my brain cells immediately. <laughs> and I went on a whole other path. So I was in Hollywood. It, it took me from the Valley to Hollywood. And I started just carousing out in Hollywood. And I eventually met all kinds of like-minded girls who love music and long-haired boys. And we just started hanging out together at a, a fellow's place. His name was Vito. He was a, wild man artist dancer freak you know he epitomized he and his people epitomized freaks so we danced my girls and i danced with Vito and carl franzoni who called himself captain f and we were just a a bunch of freaky girls you know and so frank zappa moved from new york to laurel canyon and he became sort of like the prince the crown prince of laurel canyon he he was the weirdest person there and no one would have imagined at that time but he was a total teetotaler and didn't take any drugs and one of the girls miss christine was the moon zappa's governess moon was six months old when i met her we're still very close today so we got invited up to frank zappa's house all these crazy wild girls and at that point we were dancing with a few bands Three Dog Night and Love and various bands that we they'd invite us up on stage because we were really half naked, wild, crazy teenage girls. <laughs> so that's how I met Frank Zappa. And we started spending a lot of time up there. I got very close with Gail Zappa. I always adored the women around the men. They were equally important to me because I wanted to be one of them. <laughs> And so we just spent a lot of time up at the cabin, log cabin. Frank Zappa rented this crazy cabin built in 19, 
21 or something, a cowboy, Tom Mix built it, a movie cowboy. And the GTOs were formed in there. We were at that point called the Laurel Canyon Ballet Company. We called ourselves that because we danced all over the place with all kinds of bands. We started dancing with the mothers, of course, on stage with the mothers. So Frank got a label. He got his own label, uh, Bizarre Straight. And he thought we were so interesting and so clever and so funny and so amusing and so of the moment that he wanted to capture us on vinyl. So that's how that happened. He said, you guys, please write some songs about your life experiences. While I'm on the road with the mothers, I'll come back and we'll do a record. And it was just unbelievable. At the same time, he christened us girls together outrageously. He thought that was better than the Laurel Canyon Ballet Company. <laughs> and, the, and it was. <laughs> and we shortened it to the GTOs and added, uh, you know, overtly, organically, outwardly, uh, opinionatedly, whatever. The O could stand for anything we wanted it to. And that's how we all got, all got together. We have a review of Permanent Damage from International Times here. This was written by Miles, the legendary Barry Miles, who had the bookshop that John Lennon met Yoko in. Okay, and he was, but he was a writer also. Anyway, he reviewed Permanent Damage. He said, it is more truthful than 90% of the albums in your local record store. It is produced by Frank Zappa, and it tells it like it really is. And for most people, that's incredibly hard to take. It's a wonderful album. <laughs> <laughs> We've been listening to it the last couple of days. I say it sounds great. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an absolute hoot, both musically and, shall we say, culturally. I mean, it's very funny. There may be some things on it. Is there anything on it that would sort of make you slightly, you know, given how long ago it is, it, makes, it well, would make you feel slightly cringe, like the yes. cones? Yeah, the bit? cones. Yes. The cones is the only one, but it, uh, only because it's so close to the awful word coons, but it has nothing to do with that. It was the shape of their hairstyle was like an yes. ice cream cone coming out of their foreheads. And that, yes. that's the only, you know, bummer in it. And people would imagine that it was the wrong word. It's not. It's, it's, it was the shape of it. And we admired them. It wasn't, you know, they weren't our type. We wanted long hair rockers, but we admired them. And the persistence <laughs> and all of that. And that's what that song is about. And it's funny, you know, we imitate. Very. It is funny. We imitate them exactly what they would say to us. They called us Snow White, you know. <laughs> and they were trying to get with us, but it wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that's about. And the rest of yeah. it, no. I mean, the, 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 the Moke Monster Review, you know, was very early talking about how men were, were basically abusing people, abusing yeah. early, early on. But at that time, there was no recourse. There was no mm. to anything. You know, you just went, you just dealt with it. I mean, every, yeah. every person, every woman in my age has had many Me Too moments. You know, yeah, yeah, nothing yeah, new. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, lots of people over the years have kind of said the GTOs were so influential. There's Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. You know, you can trace a sort of line through all kinds of, you know, all-girl bands or entities probably right up to the Spice Girls, you know. You, you were like the original Spice Girls. We were, we were the original all-girl, freaky girl band. Yeah. There was a band. The only other band at the time of the girl was Fanny. and But they were yeah. more straightforward rock and roll girls, you know, with bell bottoms and stuff. We were crazy maniac girls. We And, and part of it had to do with wanting to have Frank Zappa think we were great. You know, he... He was so important to all of us that it was like, okay, we got to make him laugh. We got to make him love us, you know, and it was nothing to do with sex with him ever. I mean, you know, Gail was someone we adored as well. And, but it was more about impressing him. And he, he wanted to capture these moments in time. And that's how the GTOs came about. He really thought this was important stuff, this teenage girl stuff at this time. And he wanted to claim it, own it, put it out. For, for posterity, really. That's that's what he was interested in, I think. And the fun of it all. I mean, we had a lot of fun. I was watching a clip of you talking earlier in a documentary about him where you said that he was he would conduct you with a baton, which oh, is yeah. just yeah. it's such a great yeah. image of Frank Zappa sort of I, I, conducting this I, wild yeah, record, but I, I, you know, holding a holding a baton. Lil George was a big part of our record. Because frankly, uh-huh. he, and, and he, Lowell was second in command in the studio. This was before Frank realized what a pothead he was and fired him. <laughs> but we loved yeah. Lowell too. He was, he was, he, he kept some sort of normalcy, believe it or not, in the studio. <laughs> He's never been accused of that before. Revisiting, I have a paintbrush that, that, that track, I mean, it just, it sounds like little feet before. Little yes. feet ever yeah. made a, exactly. a record. It, I was astonished by that, and obviously his slide guitar playing yeah. on permanent damage is wonderful too. Yes. People don't don't actually pay much attention to the musicality of that record but there's some pretty good stuff on there <laughs> there is great music on there i mean all all the all the sort of you know the chatter between all of you yeah, is, yeah. is is yeah. brilliant it's really funny and wonderful satire and all of that but it is it has some great musical moments i would say i mean it's not it's not so different and it's you could almost compare it to we're only in it for the money in terms of the sort of variety of of things on the record and the conversation and so forth. Well, Frank was making fun of stuff on Rural yeah. for the Money. We were not. We didn't know we okay. were doing a satire. <laughs> well, <laughs> not even with Rodney. We were just living, you know, and enjoying every second of it. At that time, <laughs> I knew how important these moments were and, and how I, I would reflect on them for the rest of my life and how, you know, I was in the right place at the right time and all of that stuff. There's a piece that we've added also about Miss Christine that a guy called Eric Himmelsbach wrote in 2018. And she actually mentions the fact that 
Miss Christine was the original like nanny for Moon Unit, wasn't she? I believe it. Yes. But there's, he talks to Alice Cooper, and Alice, and he says that he used to come around and also help babysit Zappa's kids. It's the, idea oh, he did. Of, the whole band Christmas, was there Christ- all yeah. the time. The whole Beef Art band was there all the time. Yeah. I remember once walking in, and the whole, entire Beef Art band was sitting there. They were very unused. They would sit there very calmly and stare into space. And the whole Alice Cooper band was there, and a whole bunch of the mothers were there, and a bunch of freaks too. The doors were always open there, and that's why when when Gail became pregnant again with Dweezil, she said, "I am not going to live like this. You <laughs> get me a house where people can't just walk in and yeah. you know <laughs> do whatever they want." So, yeah, that's how that happened. Wonderful. Yeah. You also knew Graham Parsons, didn't you? And of course, Christine's tune, which was the first track on uh, the gilded palace of sin was about miss christine no it wasn't oh it wasn't about miss no christine. even it wasn't about even christine. bob dylan got that wrong on his show remember when he oh my gosh well i'm in good company then yeah. <laughs> well, miss, miss christine did not go out with any you know it was about a girl named christine hinton who dated david crosby the crosby yeah and she was one of those girls who was a real she she wanted to play guys against each other and different members of the burritos and birds and all that and they didn't like it then they wrote a song about a pretty rude song and i actually double dated when i was seeing brandon dewilda the actor who was very close with graham and had a lot to do with his country music you know love i was dating brandon and and we double dated with david and christine hinton i remember it very well it was a strange double date (laughs) but anyway she died soon after that a, yeah, she was killed in a terrible so, car so, crash. So you that, know who she is too. So that's who. It yeah, 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 yeah. Because Crosby writes a lot about her in his autobiography, and it was oh, a very tragic moment oh, really? in his life. Oh. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. I, I'm gonna have so, to read that because everyone gets that wrong. Because Miss Christine was much more well known at that time. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. I just wanted to so, to ask you all this time later how you look back, what perspective you now have on the whole groupie phenomenon and what that word means to you now and, you know, what it subsequently meant in the era of Rodney's disco and so <laughs> forth. So, I mean, what's your, what is your take on it now, Pamela, these, these decades later? Well, it's changed a lot. <laughs> It has, you know, at the time I was never underage, first of all, let's just go there. Okay. Mm. I was never underage when I was seeing these rock stars, but in the early seventies, the girls got younger and younger. Rodney's English disco, you know, you could be any age and go in there. So these little baby girls, you know, started showing up. I was in my early twenties and they just, they, of course they were something brand new to these guys. Mm-hmm. Little, little little girls, you know, wow, here they come, all these little babies in their high heels and their shorts and stuff. So, of course, they they wanted them there. So the girls and the girls wanted to be there. It's not like these guys were taking advantage of these girls. However, at that age, yes, it could be perceived that way. But sure. unless you were there and saw how much these girls wanted to be with these guys and put themselves in every kind of situation so they could be with them and meet them and hang out with them, it's hard to understand how different it was, you know, yeah. how, how that came about. And it was it was a short-lived phenomenon, I think. Couldn't have happened in any other time frame. Or in any other city, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Although I know, you know, I had girlfriends in New York. Yeah, yeah. Del Overman, who's in my book, Let's Spend the Night Together, Patty Darmville, all these girls were were, you know, like Michelle was with Steven Tyler when she was fifteen. And he was only like nineteen, you know. It's just just it's just what was happening. It's the way it was back then. And no one seems to be able to understand that. And luckily, I had nothing to do with it. I was nineteen when I finally got laid. <laughs> so, so thank God, I don't ever have to explain my way out of that stuff. 
I mean, do you think that rock and roll will ever have its true sort of me to reckoning moment like the movie industry? Well, some some girls after Steven Tyler right now. Yeah. Yes. I was interested to know what your memories of the reaction to I'm With The Band when it came out. It was a huge bestseller. It's a wonderful book. There's so much great stuff in it. How do you remember the response to it? You know, being on chat shows and, and oh, getting was, somewhat... I, I, I yeah. was stunned by the reaction. I just, you know, you write something. It started because I did a couple interviews. I did an interview with Stephen Davis for Hammer of the Gods, and which was one of the very first big rock book. That and No One Here Gets Out Alive, who Danny Sugarman was a good friend of mine. But this, but Stephen Davis said, you know, wow, you know, you've got a book in here. You've got you you have your own book to write. So he was very influential in helping me make the decision to write it. I'd thought about it my whole life because I'd kept diaries and and had amazing memories that I knew no one else had. <laughs> so <laughs> so I finally decided to write it. And and it, I got many rejections. I saved them all. I saved all the rejections from the publishers. And one of them said, I think it was Random House, this will never be a book. It might be a <laughs> Might be an article for Rolling Stone. It'll never be a book. So I saved it. And when I got on bestseller list, I sent it to the guy. I cut it out and sent it to him. The guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's beautifully petty. Yeah. But, but you and J.K. Rowling, right? <laughs> oh, God, don't, don't, don't align me with her. I'm a very old Okay, woman. sorry. No, I wouldn't mean to. Open-hearted, <laughs> accepting soul. You know, we had the BTOs with us. Boys together outrageously. And... That was a time. Mm. That was a time period where anything went. You know, it was. We had the birth control pill. Boys and girls could do whatever they wanted with each other and everyone else. I mean, it was such a magical time. No wonder people are still clamoring to hear about it because yes. it was brief. And the music being made to reflect the lifestyle of all this, or vice versa. You know it. it impossible to replicate even though I've, I've i've been saying lately you know the biggest bands in the world are going to be cover bands in the future because mm. there's no one as good i'm sorry i'm just sorry there's no one as innovative as frank zappa right now can you think of someone I, I mean, Jasper's yeah. looking skeptical over there. <laughs> I mean, I, I would disagree with that. But what I really love about I'm with the band, I'd never read it before and I started reading it in the run up to this, is that the positivity with which you talk about your own desires and just your, your enthusiasm for the situations that you're in. I mean, must have been in 1987 a totally revolutionary way to write about women's sexuality in a way that hadn't really been in open conversation before. I mean, now we're starting to talk more about that kind of thing in a more open way. But at that point, it must have just been like, you know, who was writing like that? No one. In and I got a lot of shit for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you did. Yeah, I'm sure and, you and did. You know, now, but it's brilliant. If you, read, if you read it back, it's very tame compared to some girls who decided to tell all long after I did. Yeah. And for me, it was all about love. I was looking yeah. for love. I wanted love, you know. That was my – I wanted that. But I wanted it in this world. So, yes, I, I, I wrote about my sexuality. I guess Aeneas Nin maybe was the, the one before. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. But I mean, no one during my time period was, was, would, would, would do that, especially in the 80s, I think. The 80s, like I said, 20 years earlier, it was a whole different reality. And, that, and even in the 80s, it was shocking to people to read about stuff that happened 20 years earlier. And now 50 years later, it's very different. It's very different. It's like a fantasy. It's like mythology. Jim Morrison mm. will always be that beautiful Adonis with the beads around his neck. And, of course, I saw him in the gutter. Yeah, yeah. The fat guy with a beard in the gutter, you know. So, but, yeah. but, <laughs> I've got some good stories about him in that book. Because <laughs> yes, I was just part of it. I was in this world. I was on the Sunset Strip every night of my life. The Whiskey of Gogo was my was my living room, basically. Mm. Mm. So I just saw it all and I wrote about it and I I kept the diaries and I was able to quote myself. I was able to quote like, Oh, Led Zeppelin's doing their encore. I, I'm in the I'm in the limo. 
Jimmy. Oh, here's Jimmy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was so amazing. It took me a beat to realize that those were actual diary extracts from, oh. you know, when you, that it's, it, you know, they're so archetypal diary <laughs> entries. It's, yes. It's wonderful. Yes, every young girl can relate to to it even now. Of course. And, and, and I didn't mean to say there's no great music being made now. I go see live music all the time. But that particular time frame produced so, something, mm. something in the atmosphere in that five, six year period that allowed this, all these geniuses to come through. It started, yeah. Elvis started it. I don't care what anyone says. And uh, it, did, he opened these doors. And you know John Lennon walked through it. I mean, that's just it's just that. It, yeah, it can't be compared. I'm not comparing mm. it. Can't be compared, but because there, yeah. I you know I love the Struts. I love Monoskin. There's a lot of stuff I like. But I'm glad I lived then. I'm glad I was a yeah. young <laughs> girl back then. Yes, yes, I bet. Mm. I mean, the, the thing is, is that music was so central to the entire culture. Yes. In a way that is impossible to be now. It's, right. it's too diverse. It's yes. too much other stuff, you know. Yes. But I mean, you know, I was 12 in 1968 and I just wanted to be part of all of that. You know, it was, there was nothing else. There was literally nothing else to yep. look at. Yeah, I know. Mm. It was, it was, mm. it was, it permeated the whole world. Yeah. The Beatles, the Stones, Zepp, uh, you know, these people permeated the universe. It wasn't like, small bits of stuff like it is now i mean it's just there are huge and luckily it's a lot of women obviously making yeah. a whole lot of noise right now but back then it was just it had it was cultural like you said it was a a movement right yeah. there's no movement right now mm. there's a lot of mm. different variations on that theme <laughs> but yeah and it, a lot of it had to do with Peace and love. And that's why people look back at this like, you know, what was a love in like? It's impossible to describe the doors, yeah. the birds, whoever. They would play them for free. You know, they, they didn't wait around for the paycheck. It was not about that. It had so much to do with uh, acceptance of each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really was. Life mm -hmm. was a love in for a while there. Yeah. I mean, you have written about the darker side of the kind of rock and roll dream, of course, and not all the GTOs, you know, have ended up in as good shape as you have. I mean, you, you always had this very sunny, upbeat disposition, I think, and that comes across in pieces about the GTOs and so forth. A couple of the other pieces that we're going to feature on the homepage are about Miss Christine and about about Mercy. I hadn't realized till I revisited this piece about Christine that I mentioned earlier by Eric Himmelsbach that it was actually Jonathan Richman who 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 basically saw Christine sort of like lying on the floor and like came in. I think uh, one of the his fellow modern lovers was having a shower and Jonathan Richman comes. There's something wrong with Christine something not right and she had obviously overdosed i, I had i had no idea that that it was in that house in massachusetts and then the other piece is by our friend chris campion who's an rbp writer and he's been on the podcast and he wrote this really lovely piece about mercy miss mercy last year which yes. is great so i think he wrote it for the la times and fortunately she she did have a, ha a happy-ish ending to her life didn't yes, she yes. having been virtually homeless and yeah and were you in touch with her oh my god she was my best friend she was your best friend. She yeah. was on your podcast, wasn't she? Oh, yeah, a couple twice. Of times. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to have to listen to those. Oh, I just, my I noticed, God. Have uh, you read her book? No, I haven't. Oh, and that's my. called Permanent Damage, right? Yes, it's called Permanent Damage. She's the one who named our, our album. Yes. She, there's no one like her in this world. And, yes, she had a rough time, but she doesn't look at her rough time of being homeless for seven years as a rough time. She always, I can't say enjoyed, but respected her life you know respected no matter what she did with her life she respected herself and and what she'd been through and yes boy, what a character you you've got to read her book and please okay will do podcast but she turned out fine she was many many years sober she yes it came about because my mother was ill and she had just gotten sober like literally two three months before and i needed help with my mom 
because she was living with me and I, I needed some help. And and Mercy always got along with her. So Mercy became her caretaker, so to speak, three days a week and turned her completely around because she needed to be, she had to be sober to do that. And she kept sober and she stayed sober the whole time ever since. So I think Chris says she got sober on Thanksgiving Day in 1998. <laughs> so she had many, many yes. years yes, drug free, did. which is really good to know. Just one quick footnote question. The featured writer on the homepage is, is an LA kind of mainstay, Richard Cromolin, whose name you will know, wrote for many years for the of LA course. Times. Love and we've it. run, we've got this piece, uh, this review of the Hollywood street revival and trash dance <laughs> in the fall of 74 at the Hollywood Palladium. Yes. And you're on the bill there. Were you were you in the in the GTOs in that at that gig? I had just met Michael, the fellow I married. Got the beautiful yes. last Michael Debars, yeah. Yeah. Last Great man. The S is silent, by the way. It's Debar. Debar. Yeah. And, and he was performing. He had just gone solo. Silverhead, his band broke up and he was going solo. And he was gonna perform. So the GTOs got back together. We hadn't been, and it was really only Mercy, Cinderella, and me, and a couple other girls we brought up there with us. And we backed Michael. Okay. We backed him up, and we sang, I think, oh, God, Mr. Sandman, I think we sang <laughs> in a really terrible way. But <laughs> I remember Mercy was on heroin that night, and she she stumbled in late with a giant rainbow colored wig on it was all askew and everything so it was really quite a night yeah i remember it very well well Cromlin says it was a kind of wake for the glitter rock <laughs> era and i love uh, again only in hollywood right but i wish i'd been there the, the dolls the new york dolls were headlining and iggy pop performed yeah it sounds like fun it, it was wild it was absolutely <laughs> wild it was at the palladium the very first place I came to Hollywood, and that's where I met Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart, at the second annual teen fair. And he, he was so out of place. He was, <laughs> he just, he didn't fit in. How he got that gig, I don't know, 1965. But he, he, when Victor introduced us, he looked me up and down and said, you're a gas. I wish there were more people like you. And I was like, right. Really? <laughs> <laughs> what is it about me? I was this high school kid. And for this giant burly so much of the stuff i've been through it's hard to describe but for him to recognize that something in me there it just shifted my whole it sent me on a whole other path <laughs> wonderful wonderful so pamela while all this was going on there was a kind of another la happening that you semi-intersected with but it's very different from the sort of rodney's GTOs LA. This sort of, I'm talking about the kind of laid back singer songwriter crowd, exemplified by kind of Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown and so forth. It just so happens that that next week sees the UK publication of producer Peter Asher's memoir, A Life in Music. So we decided to digitize an interview that I did with him in 2003. And given that his biggest success came with Linda Ronstadt. I thought it'd be interesting to look at sort of the parallels between, you know, her experience as a female musician, particularly in LA, and your own take on what it meant to be a woman in that era, in that city. The audio quality isn't exceptional, but let's hear the first clip and maybe discuss that. you were the first man who treated her like an equal. Right. It's weird. I never think of myself as a you know, free free feminist feminist, but it, 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 it didn't yeah. occur to me to do anything different, yeah. No.
Well, so, you know, I thought it was interesting maybe for you to hear someone like Linda Ronstadt talking in that era and the particular, the sort of struggle she had with, with men domineering kind of producers and record executives and boyfriends, of course, you know. And, you know, I always did get the impression that, that Peter was a very sympathetic kind of guy. What did you think of all that music that was made? You know, the, 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 the Canyon sound, the singer songwriters, you know, did you, did you feel you were in a very sort of different LA sphere from those people? I mean, no, did we it was all someone? one. We were all in it was all one thing. together. Yeah. And I, I revered her. She was my favorite singer. I saw her play was she? many times at the Troubadour. I was always inspired by her and vice versa. She writes about me in her book in a really positive, sweet way. You know, we'd, we'd interact in the office. We, we were, I guess she was managed by Herb Cohen or something because we were always together in the, I'd see her in the office or, and I always got to go to her gigs for free because of our connection. And I just loved it. I got, I never paid for a gig probably in my whole life. I mean, back then, <laughs> I just walked in, but anyway, I loved her. I loved her and I, and I, and I loved all oh, Crosby, Stills and Nash. The first time, oh God, first time I heard Crosby, Stills and Nash, pretty young, I was living with Brandon downstairs. David Crosby lived upstairs and I'd visit with him sometimes. He never had clothes on. He was always naked in the house. He had big <laughs> bowls of Coke and pot everywhere. I mean, he was very accommodating. <laughs> 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 that's a word for it but one day i went up there looking for brandon and he said here i want to play you something and he had this bunch of equipment there and he turned it on and played played some amazing you know i'd never heard anything like it and he said this is my new group we're gonna call it we're gonna call ourselves the frozen noses <laughs> and, I, and, I, and i can't think why, oh, even, why on no, even then i thought that's not a very good name for a band <laughs> And, and it's it's a bust also so i thought well that's not cool but anyway the music was amazing and of course decided not to call it that but use the real names yeah. <laughs> for the music yeah. so i was i i i've often said i was the forrest gump of a lot of stuff because i was in situations that no one would believe <laughs> so i wrote about it <laughs> and you know i still get many detractors I still get people saying to me that you're making this up. A lot of people think I made a bunch of it up. Not true. It's all there. It's all in my diaries. And they should be in the Smithsonian or something. Not the yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I'm I'm not a fan of that. But you know, some their 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 history, their history from a very important time frame, musically especially, but not just music. It was it was culturally sexually politically i mean it was all it was all there it was this mm. the height it was all came together in like 66 to 74 ish those are the mm. years that 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 i think all that shit went down and it started shifting after manson and altamont and stuff but it was still intact for a, a lot of people say you know that's when it all ended but that's not true it, it kept going for a while when the hard, hard drugs came on coke, especially, what a nightmare that stuff is. Mm. But, mm. you know, when we were on acid and smoking a lot of pot and looking for God in, in, in everything and each other, it was uh, it was nothing like it. I mean, some of it's just too outrageous to have been made up. So, I mean, how can anyone think that <laughs> if, you, if you were making it up, you'd have aimed a bit lower, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get called I'm just a slut. Say... I get called a slut on social media. Oh, for I'm goodness. a 74-year-old yeah. lady, right? Now I still get called a slut. Is that a compliment? I don't know my age. Maybe it is. Mm -hmm. Well, look, just to say a little more about the Peter Asher interview, I mean, revisiting it after two decades, it was pretty interesting to hear. You know, he's a very bright guy. Yes. Obviously, he's a fellow countryman of ours. He first went to America as one half of Peter and Gordon, had, you know, pop success in America was on the Sunset Strip, probably the same time as you. Oh, we interacted. We interacted. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. But then he <laughs> and then he comes, he goes back to London, works for Apple, obviously. Jane Asher was his sister. Jane was oh. Paul McCartney's girlfriend. Anyway, and then he comes back to L.A. with James Taylor, who'd been signed to, to Apple. And so he talks in this 
audio interview quite a lot about James Taylor and making the you know the Sweet Baby James album, which I think is a real seminal, seminal sort of LA album from the late sixties. Is it sixty nine seventy? Anyway, I I really like that record. I have to say, you weren't allowed even to to say you like James Taylor in the kind of punk era, but I've come around to it now. Then <laughs> so, he talks about Carol King and we and, and Tapestry. You've got a friend and all of that. So it's it's an interesting sort of British perspective, if you like, almost on that whole LA era, the singer songs. Another artist that he he produced was John David or J.D. Souther, who co-wrote more than a few of the great Eagles songs and who, of course, had relationships with more than a few female singers um, in, in <laughs> he LA. Um, so yeah. he, 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 was a real, he was a real heartbreaker and lady yes. killer, I think. He um, was a ladies man. A ladies man, but, I never, but an interesting I only, guy. I only interacted with him. Through with Chris Hillman when I was Southern. Oh, of course, Southern Hillman Fury. Yeah, because yeah. I think Chris was your first sort of real love, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. So I'd forgotten that you had that connection too. Well, let's hear the second clip from the Peter Asher audio where he talks about JD. John had a Yeah. There's not a gold singer who had a in that era. John David did not have a down here. <laughs> That's the impression I get. No, it's true. It's yeah, true. I broke a few hearts. It's a very funny story that I didn't, you'd have to get from one of them to tell. There was a point in time when Jody and Linda met on the doorstep. Yeah. And when leaving, one arriving, you realized what was going on. That had to happen at some point. Let's face it. it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You could do a peak frame family tree just exactly. of their relationship. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, did, I love that idea of, you know, which who was leaving, who was arriving. Yeah. <laughs> Peter didn't say and maybe doesn't know. Anyway, maybe it was Joni leaving and Linda arriving or the other way around. But it's, it's a great moment in sort of <laughs> L.A. Canyon history. Very, very Laurel Canyon. You know, I do these rock and roll tours. I'm with the band Rock and Roll Tours where I take people around in a big van and show them all the sites where all this stuff happened, where the GTOs did their record, where where they where the Zappas moved to, you know, where all the birds lived, where love lived and 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 I also go by Joni Mitchell's house because everyone wants to know where that, you know, our house is a very, very, very fine house where that is. <laughs> our house is a very, very, very fine house with two cats in the yard. Life used to be so Apparently she still owns that house and, and just leases it, but yeah, so that's that's definitely part of my thing. I definitely have to go by there because everyone wants to know where it was. It was right above where Frank Zappa lived. Does the bus go up to um, Appian Way where Carol King's house was? No, I don't go up there. I haven't had much call. Too high. Too high. Well, I haven't had much call for Carol King people in my band. Oh, I, okay. admire, <laughs> I admire all the women who who came through there. I mean, it wasn't easy for them. No, absolutely. Well, listen, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you about that that L.A. era. As I mentioned at the beginning, Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart showed up during the permanent damage sessions, if I've got that correct. I think you said that somewhere. The whole band, band, the whole Jeff Beck group showed up, which is amazing. Well, it's an amazing and I guess kind of, you know, poignant coincidence given that we, we learned late yesterday that that Jeff Beck had died very suddenly after contracting, uh, he'd gone meningitis, bacterial meningitis. So, I mean, he was 78, which is, you know, I mean, it's not young, but no one imagined he was about to to leave us. So, I mean, Mark, I'm going to ask you what just, what your first memory of hearing or being aware of Jeff Beck, you know, as, as a player, as a, as a rock and roll, as a pop star. Was, well, I mean, they're two different things. I mean, yeah. as, a pop, as a pop star, there's kind of that, I have to say, ghastly high-ho silver lining, which is a, <laughs> a song that I'd condemn, you know, happily. I guess it was kind of a blow by blow around there where I really started hearing not the old birds, not the not, no, but it's too, yeah. they, were too, they were before my time. That's, I know it's ridiculous. Like, you know, just, you know, when you're that age, if it's three years before your time, it's, you, 
you know, it's dead. Then I saw, I, I just love his playing. I don't necessarily love the music he's playing in terms of its sort of general format. I mean, I've got a fairly low tolerance of kind of Fusak, you know, kind of jazz funk fusion sort of stuff, you know. But he is an extraordinary player. I mean, I'm you know, Jimi Hendrix is my great god as a mm. guitar player. And Beck's like the next best thing, the guy who could really tell stories on the guitar. And I love that 2007, that run of gigs he did at Ronnie Scott's, mm. which, you know, you can, you can hear and see the, the albums released, the videos, the, the DVDs out there. And he's just extraordinary. The other thing that was fantastic about him is that he actively employed women musicians. Fabulous. I mean, that that bass player, uh, Tal... Wilkenfeld. Wilkenfeld. Yeah, yeah. Just astonishing. And, and, you know, he comes from that sort of like macho kind of rock and roll culture. And for him to absolutely throw the doors open of his band to women musicians, Mm. I thought that was fantastic. So it didn't matter the context. His playing was always astonishing, regardless Mm. of the context. I mean, Barney, you really like his version of Ness and Dorma, don't you? Yeah, I saw him play of a, that Ness and Dorma live at this open air festival in Surrey once, and I have to say, uh, in a part of me just thought this is just so naff and absurd. Yeah, yeah. But five six minutes later, I had tears streaming down yeah, my face. I mean, it, it was yeah. just sort of it was so beautiful. It was it, my heart was just kind of bursting with the beauty of his playing. I mean. Yeah, yeah, and I, I remember when we were first starting Rocks Back Pages, so 20 years ago, you, your place in Clapham Common West Side, you playing Brush with the Blues and both of us going, Brush with this the is blues. just fantastic. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, is, he used to play with his fingers. He didn't use a pick, for most certainly for his latter period. And that his touch mm. was just, you know, beyond So belief. human, really. So yeah. I mean, just the humanity yeah. of the guy. Pamela, do you remember when you first were aware of of Jeff? I guess it would have been in the Yardbirds. Did you see them in kind of the mid-60s? No, I didn't meet Jeff or know much about him until the Jeff Beck group. Uh, right. I, You know, the they came to town. We were always wanting to be with a, whoever British band came to town. None of Any us, British band would do. Uh, really, yeah, right? pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. But, but none of us got with them sexually or anything they people misconstrue the term groupie because a lot of times we just wanted to spend time with these people hang out know them share stuff and you know we took them all shopping we took them to our favorite vintage store the only vintage clothing store in la at the time with glass farmhouse took the whole band there and they got decked out on stuff i remember rod bought probably his first feather boa there i mean it was a Wow, that's great! And and we we'd sat at the Chateau Marmont with him all afternoon watching soccer. It was that kind of thing, and, <laughs> and they we all got along really well. And they just they wanted to play on our record. Frank asked them. I guess Jeff was a big fan of Frank's and vice versa. And Frank asked them to be on the record, and they came down, spent a whole day there with us in the studio, and it was it was so thrilling. Yeah, oh, it was hard to express how thrilling it was for us all. And he played on three songs. His, I think his the Eureka Springs Garbage Lady is. He's got some really good stuff. On. <laughs> okay, so he's on. I was going to ask you when it's not immediately obvious where where Beck is playing on the record. Oh, I, I think sure it how is. Much stuff. I think you it, think it's, <laughs> I have to go. I have to go <laughs> listen a little more closely. It's very <laughs> obvious what he's playing. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Right, turn okay. way up. and rod stewart was such a you know he wasn't getting enough attention we called him rodney rooster then because his hair stuck straight up Yes. Rodney is what we called him. But he, he disappeared <laughs> at one point because he wasn't getting enough attention. And we had to go out looking for him in the middle of Glendale, you know, suburb. And finally <laughs> found him sitting on the steps of a school sulking. And, you know, we had to bring him back and get him on a song, right? So he sings on Mercy's song, Mercy's crazy song at the end of the of the album. 
And you can hear him just screaming, oh, yeah, shock treatment, oh, let me go. Shock treatment wow. is the name of that song. It's very mercy. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. Go, I'm gonna have to go and listen to the record again with slightly better headphones. I think. <laughs> <laughs> We're marking Jeff Beck's passing. I mean, I'm really, I do feel, you know, really, really sad, actually. Yeah. But we've we've got some great stuff on Jeff Beck, including an audio interview that a guy called Steve Newton did in 2001. So you'll be able to hear Jeff talking to him. I mean, it's a phone interview, but it's 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 interesting. And there's three interviews. One from when Jeff was a yardbird actually from KRLA beat. So wow. it's, it's, it's got that kind of LA context. My I think the yardbirds must've been, yeah, exactly. So he's, he's, he's talking about being a yardbird. There's um, actually an interview that Alan Light, former Vibe editor sent me this morning, which has got great quotes about how Stevie Wonder's superstition came together, which is, which is just great. And also the wonderful Kate Mossman, who was a guest on our podcast last year, wrote a fabulous profile of Jeff in 2016 for the New Statesman. And I'm just going to quote this because it sort of speaks to what we were saying earlier, just about the unique sound of Jeff's playing. Much of what Jeff has done with his instrument resulted from a kind of musical mechanics, a private process of tinkering, test driving, and refinement. Years ago, while listening to Bulgarian choral music, presumably because he couldn't bear to listen to guitars, he started playing a tune with his tremolo. Pulling the whammy bar high off the body, he divined notes from an invisible scale in midair. The ghost voice, more like a theremin than a strat, appears on the 1989 song, Where Were You? Which I think is also one of the most yeah, yeah. supernaturally beautiful things Jeff ever, ever did. And I just think that's, that's just a, an interesting thing to learn from Kate's fabulous piece, actually. I mean, she's clearly a fan. You didn't really expect to read a long piece about Jeff back in The New Statesman, but there it is. <laughs> it's, the title is The Seven Million Pound Fingers, How Jeff oh. Beck Became a Guitar Hero by Saying No. It's a great piece. It's a wonderful piece. And I mean, I, I, you know, people always said that, that he was the inspiration for Nigel Tufnell, and one can kind of see <laughs> that. <laughs> he is quite, the Tufnell character is quite Beckish, but it's almost, it's just another thing that made, made me love Jeff Beck, you know, and uh, I mean, he, I agree with you, Mark. I think next to Hendrix, he's the most extraordinary electric guitar player yeah. that rock, rock has ever produced. So farewell. Do you guys have any any pieces you want to just briefly mention before we wrap up? Actually, really, just one piece I'd particularly like to mention, which is, well, I'd like to mention as an aside, we've got our first Ethel Merman piece on the site, which has <laughs> given me great pleasure. But this is Bonnie Raitt, interviewed by Judith Sims, Rolling Stone, November 72, about going to Woodstock to record uh, Taking My Time, I think. I could be wrong about which album it was. And she says, in June, there aren't many places that are pleasant. So I thought, Woodstock, out in the country, right? Dramatic pause, sly smile. It rained every day. My house had frogs and salamanders, grimaced. <laughs> Freezing, no heat, I got sick. And Woodstock, for all its musical reputations, no place for a girl who likes to have her fun. The town's real incestuous. The old ladies dress up in low-cut slinky dresses and paint their eyes and sit around in the one restaurant, bored stiff because their old men are never there. They're either on the road or in a studio or driving down the main street picking up 15-year-old girls and heading out to the woods. Real decadence. The whole town's on the nod. Guys sit at the traffic lights waiting for the streets to turn green. I had to go back to New York City to get healthy. I just love that. I think that's fantastic. That is so funny. I mean, it's basically <laughs> the, the sunset strip with pine trees and <laughs> snow, isn't it? Um, <laughs> just quickly as an aside, Pamela, is it, is it true that Miss Christine went up to Woodstock with Todd Rundgren <laughs> and also, like, had a fling with Albert Grossman. Yes. I'm very curious. That, that is true. true. <laughs> All of that is true. Yes, that she, is extraordinary. Yes, I remember meeting Albert Grossman at the Whiskey A Go-Go with her and thinking, wow, wow she's really going in different directions here. 
(laughs) (laughs) Thanks for confirming. We always respected each other, what, what we each other did. That was the thing about women back then. You know, we, we, we understood each other. And if we, if we didn't even, that was okay. Like if she wanted to be with Albert Grossman, I didn't, we, there was no judgment between any of us. Mm-hmm. I just want to quote from, from actually from another Judith Sims piece quickly, because I noticed that Mark, you added this, I guess sometime in the last couple of weeks, it's an interview from 1973 that Judith did with Carol Kay, the great yes. session bass player. It seems to kind of chime in with the general theme of this episode. She says, uh, once you get past the woman's role, you've got it made. If you can forget you're a woman and think of yourself as a person, it comes off better. And I mean, I guess she's talking as a female session player surrounded yeah, yeah. mainly by by male yeah. session I mean, musicians in, in the same piece she talks about sort of you know the few times where she'd lead a session how weird it was as a woman to lead a session and she had to be like a mother with these these boys you know right and she, how she she would say i would say you know i'd say shit just to make the guys feel comfortable <laughs> <laughs> that's all it took that's all jasper it took. have you got any pieces you know tell sure us about yeah quickly. i'll just mention yeah. a couple of things one of yeah. them actually kind of dovetails with what sort of the same thing as what you the piece you just talked about which is an interesting piece by francis morgan in the wire it's called women's march it's from may 2014 mm-hmm. and they're looking at how compiling by gender can either be good and positive and and productive as a way of kind of positively changing people's perceptions of any given genre, but can also, can also reduce sonic horizons. And it's just a, it's a quite an academic piece as you might expect from the wire, but it's really worth reading where Francis Morgan is arguing about, you know, how do you compile a compilation of women's music without ghettoizing women by doing that? And I think that's fascinating. And then the other thing is a review, live review of The Comet is Coming by Ben Myers in Mojo in March 2017. And The Comet is Coming, I mean, earlier we sort of touched on who's doing interesting inventive music nowadays. I would say very firmly Shabaka Hutchins and The Comet is Coming. Just an amazing, amazing group. And Ben Myers writes, though the trio's appearance on the Mercury Music Prize list prompted the obligatory token jazz entry grumblings, this sound is a million interplanetary miles away from the measured jazz of scholars. This is future forward jazz fixed with a charge and fuse then detonated, a spectral shimmering display of pyrotechnics, bong-bubbling dub of journey through the asteroid belt to banging acid house and global hypercolor afropunk via a limb-flailing drum-led dance-off, which I think is is a fantastic description of a Incredible band. Wonderful writing. It makes me want to hear the band. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd like them. I think you'd like them, Pamela. They're um, astonishingly good, actually. They're really young. Right. Well, thank you so much for that, Jasper. That brings us to the end of the episode. And it remains only for me to thank you so much for joining us today, Pamela. It's a real joy to hear you and Go back in time through all those amazing memories. We will be back in two weeks with Gary Kemp, former Spandau Ballet man. Do visit Rock's Back Pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and over 800 audio interviews are also there. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP. If not, maybe suggest you take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. And it's bye from me and bye from you guys. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. That concludes episode 144 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Pamela Debar. Visit her website at pameladebarofficial.com for details of her podcast, books, and more. The host of Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.